media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We've been going through Philippians. We started revisiting that again a couple weeks ago and we come upon a verse today that is actually going to serve as our vision verse for 2023. But I have a couple questions. You know, I ask a lot of questions uh, during my sermons. Uh, it's to cause you to think, to ponder. We are to wrestle with the Word of God. Not wrestle against the Word of God, trying to find fault or denial, but we wrestle with the Word of God because sometimes it challenges us to do something that is not part of our human nature. It's part of our spiritual nature, and so that's why we wrestle with the Word. And so a lot of times, I will ask you questions And I start off with two this morning. And you might not be able to see how they are directly related to the scripture this morning. By the end of the sermon, I hope that you see that they are absolutely, positively, directly related. So two questions. First one, have you ever found yourself disagreeing about a point or a belief with someone, but you found yourself really respecting the way that it was handled by them with grace or calmness or personal conviction? Have you ever found that? You know, you, you don't agree with the person. You leave not agreeing with the point. But you go, I, I like that person. Or they really made their point wow. Or they handled it maturely. Or, you know, maybe a lot of different thoughts would come to mind. So that's the first question. Do you have an answer for that? I think I saw most people say yes. And I assume that to be so because I think that's, we can all think of at least one circumstance where that happens. Second question. Have you ever found yourself agreeing with a person and the point and the belief that they're standing for, but you totally disagree with the way that they handled themselves or the way that they made the point or the, you know, the kind of the whole thing that ensued there? Have you ever found yourself in that condition? Okay. So, so we can agree with somebody that we don't agree with the point, but we can agree with them because they handled it if you want to say maturely. We're going to change that word from maturity to spiritual discipline a little bit later on, but with maturity and with grace, with kindness, with gentleness, with reasonableness. And yet we could stand side by side on a matter that we have conviction about, that we really have a strong belief, and and this person has that strong belief. We're going, you totally handled that in a way that I would not have handled it or that I disagree with. In other words, as important as beliefs are, it's the way that we handle our expression of those beliefs and the way that we converse with others and that we relate to others, would you say, is a really, really important factor. If we come to that conclusion this morning, I want you to understand that we could come to that conclusion on two different aspects. One, we could say that's just morality or maturity, and it is that. I want you to see this morning that as Paul commands us, as God commands us to be the most reasonable person in the room, that it's not just out of maturity. It's not just because, oh, let's all get along. It's on a theological basis of we who are in Christ, of what Christ has done for us. I mean, I I could make that point, and it would be a solid point, to be the most mature, the most reasonable, the most gentle, the most gracious I mean, my wife has challenged other people before, not knowing their spiritual background. Hey, we just need to show more grace. 
And, and I think everybody, at least in that little small circle, kind of understood whether they had that spiritual feeling of, of connectiveness with Christ because of being saved, of, of trusting in Christ and his work for their salvation, or if they weren't. There, there's a moral basis for understanding that. But guys, I want you to see that there's a theological basis. And Paul's not just saying, okay, become the better moral person. What he's calling for us to do is let the very light of Christ, the life of Christ, and the victory of Christ shine through us as we entertain relationships in this world. Does that make sense? Because I, I don't want anybody to go, you know, it is a moral issue, Pastor. Of course it is. But it's deeper than that. And the challenge for this year in the vision verse that we're going to have is not just let's be better people. Let's not just be, let's kind of show ourselves morally a little bit more astute. No, it's because Christ is in you. Here is something that Paul can command us to behave in a certain way. And that the very spirit of God enables us to actually live that life. If you answered yes to those two previous questions, I think we can draw out that it is really important how do we handle things. And when we begin to understand that concept, I think we begin to to reflect back on, if you were here last week, uh, what we saw in the beginnings of Philippians 4. Paul addressed two ladies in the church that were in great disagreement. This disagreement had kind of then begun to filter out to other people. People were taking sides, as human people will do. And he gave them, he admonished them, he entreated them, whatever word that you want to use there, he commanded them to do something. Look back to Philippians 4, 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He didn't pick a side. He didn't say that one was right and one was wrong. He simply put it back into perspective. And we said last week, kind of my lingo, Jesus trumps everything. Do you agree with that? That Christ in our lives should trump everything. Yeah, but I have really, really strong feelings about this. Jesus trumps everything. Or, or what we talked about last week, you know, well, you know, my mama was this way, her, her mama was that way, and so I just, I come from this long line of people that kind of handle situations in that way. That as real as that is, we are people influenced by the culture that we have grown up in and the influence that people have given to us. But once we're in Christ, we do not have to remain that way, especially if it's an inferior way to live. And so anything that we could begin to throw at that, we begin to see what Paul was saying, that Jesus truly can trump everything. It gives us the right perspective. And yet we began to bring out last week that we live in a world that more and more and more seems to have lost perspective. In my 60 years, we are living in a day when everything is a 10 or 11 on a scale of 1 to 10. I mean, little things. Now, there's some things that we, that we generally just, you know, that we say, okay, that is a 10. Especially if it's a biblical thing or a truth or something like that. But, I mean, nowadays people are so offended, are so put off, are so disagreeable about the little things. And we, we mentioned even last week that, okay, you know, somebody got shot because their McDonald's fries were not as warm as they wanted. And... and Isn't that scary, guys? I mean, in the perspective of 
real world, real world. The fact that we would be able to get McDonald's fries is a plus. On a scale of 1 to 10, I don't know how much of a plus that is. Is that a 5? Is it a 7 or 8? If you've ever traveled foreignly where they don't have McDonald's, it's a 10. I promise you. (laughs) And yet they're not the temperature that you want. And so you shoot somebody. Well, Bobby, that just proves that there's just a lot of craziness in this world. There's a lot of people not handling things in perspective. You're exactly right. But it seems like it is becoming the flavor of the day that we live in. And folks, I would say that Christians are being affected by that too. We are products of our environment. Unless we have another environment, another mindset that is contrasting or contracting that. And that's what the gospel does. One of my favorite phrases out of the Acts is when it talks about that as the, as the early leaders of the church went out. They said, and they turned the whole world upside down. Ask yourself a question this morning. I mean, honestly, just in your realm of your world, are you turning the world upside down or is the world turning you upside down? And the shorter our fuse gets, the more animated that we would get about things that really we shouldn't get animated about. This society, this culture that we live in has become more of an influence on us than we as gospel believers have on the society. One thing that we have to understand about this passage here, so we look at verses 4 and 5, is that Paul is addressing Christians. He's not addressing humanity. He's addressing people who are transformed in life, regenerated. Whatever spiritual words, whatever other words you want to use, these are people that have placed their faith and trust in Christ. Now the very Spirit of Holy God resides in them. It's really important that we understand that, that his addressing to these two ladies is that they were both Christians. He just doesn't go out into the world and say, okay, everybody act better. No, he's addressing the church. In this case, as he gives these commands this morning, and they are commands, not suggestions, they are based upon the authority that he has in Christ Jesus to talk to other people who have Christ Jesus in their lives. Really important for us to understand and keep this in mind as we see God's instruction. Because he's not giving advice to the world. He's giving these commands to the children of God. And what are these commands? Verse 4 and 5. Three different commands. Rejoice in the Lord always. Command number one. I will say to you again, rejoice. Command number two. It is two separate commands. He didn't just kind of get forgetful. Two different commands, two distinct commands, even though it's the same, uh, in essence, the same command. And the third command, verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. First, it seems that verse 4 really doesn't fit in this discussion. I mean, a lot of times when we quote Philippians 4, 4, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's kind of, you know, in some other context. But I hope that you've learned in biblical study that context is everything. (laughs) 
and that it's really easy to take something that is a good truth out of context, and there's a purpose of why Paul said this in the time that he did. What does rejoicing have to do with the solving disputes? Why didn't Paul, now on an entirely different matter, just came to my mind, rejoice? And again, I say rejoice. Folks, folks, he hasn't broken stride. He just encouraged two ladies to agree in the Lord. And then he's going to call for us to be reasonable and that our reasonableness would be known to all the world, everyone around us. And in the middle here, it says rejoice. Again, I say to you, rejoice. It seems like it's disconnected. I pray this morning that God would connect that because the very thing that he's saying there in the middle influences what he's just commanded us to do on both sides. Look back to verse 3. Paul talked to both of these ladies and they were actually very good Christian ladies. He said, you labored side by side for the gospel. Your names are written in the book of life. He doesn't just say that to kind of butter them up. He's saying, these are good ladies, but they found themselves in disagreement. And their disagreement has now led others to have a disagreeable nature. And it's starting to hurt the church. That's the reason that he pulled the Jesus card. Hey, agree in the Lord. Again, look what it says there in verse 4. That's the context that we see for verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. That verse, without proper context, can actually have a, a very opposite effect on us as Christ followers. Instead of being inspiring, it can actually feel burdensome. Let, let me give you an example. Have you ever been going through tragedy in your life? I mean tragedy. We're not talking about, ah, you know, I was a little late, late for work today or wanted to go to that. I didn't get to go to that. I'm not talking about just, you know, circumstances that made you unhappy. Have you ever dealt with tragedy in your life and some well-meaning person, Christian or not, came up? We know the Bible says, <laughs> rejoice. Again, I say to you, rejoice. At that moment, could that be a weight upon your shoulders? I mean, you're feeling down. You're feeling destroyed. You're feeling all these different emotions. And somebody comes up, even if they are well-meaning, and now put a smile on that face. Come on. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's not the context of this verse. He's not just saying slap a smile on that face and go on. No, what he's saying is because of this victory in the Lord, because of who we are in Christ Jesus, we have a reason to rejoice even in times that we would find ourselves in unfortunate situations and disagreements with others. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are there times in your lives when you don't feel like rejoicing? Of course there are. Honesty needs to prevail here, okay? When you're in those moments that your life feels destroyed and devastated by these events and, and somebody comes up and says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Have you ever wanted to hit them? You have to speak honestly. Have you ever felt this compulsion like, 
You don't understand what I'm going through. You're not taking me seriously in a way you really don't care about me. The Word of God is a two-edged sword, guys. And it cuts in and it cuts out. And sometimes we have weaponized the very Word of God. We've placed weights. That's what Jesus accused the Pharisees of, of the Old Testament. He said, you've put weight upon people. Because if you take this out of context, now all of a sudden you've put a law upon them that is now a weight upon their shoulders. So if that's not the context, just to slap a smile on your face when tragedy happens in your life, what does it mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is to ignore hurt and heartbreak. What it does mean is to remember the supremacy of Christ. Either Christ is supreme or he's not, guys. Either it can be well with our soul, even in the midst of tragedy, because of the victory of Christ, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the tree. Either it is true or it's not, and that needs to bring a difference in our perspective. If not, this is just a fairy tale. If not, this is just a crutch for weak people. Or it is the very truth of a living God who says even in the midst of tragedy and, and dire circumstances, you can rejoice, not in those circumstances, but in Christ Jesus. And either that little light bulb goes off when we understand theologically what he is saying, or it doesn't. But remember what we said last week? That Paul, that Paul builds good godly living on the basis of good theology. That's why we need good theology. But good theology doesn't stand just between the, these four or five inches between our ears and stay there so that we can be puffed up smart people. No, it's there so that when tragedy does come, we can say, you know, I can rejoice. Not that my husband or wife just passed or that this happened to my child or that this happened in my life. I can rejoice that I was lost and now I'm found. I was dead and he made me alive. I was apart the enemy of God and now I've become a son or a daughter of the living God. And I think we would agree with that in theology. But how many of you found that it sure is hard to live out day by day, especially when tragedy hits? What is Paul not saying, I believe? What is God not saying here? He's not saying pretend like nothing is wrong. He's not saying grow up and take it like an adult. He's not saying ignore genuine feelings and emotions. So if he's not saying that, what is he saying? Let me use Bobby's phrase. Jesus trumps everything. Either he does or he doesn't, guys. There's something so whole about our faith, or it's nothing. There's not a partiality like, okay, you get a little bit of Jesus... Now, you may get, you can come to church and get a a little bit of Jesus' truth. But if you get Jesus, if you put your faith and your trust, 
and to His work, then you are truly transformed. You are truly, at that point, made alive. You are a brand new creation in Christ. You are regenerate. Regenerated into, into a place where you are not what you used to be. But it doesn't happen halfway. Listen real close. What Paul is saying is simple, but it's not simplistic. To look at the supremacy of Christ when our life is falling apart is hard. Probably the most challenging thing that you will do in your Christian walk is to believe these truths in their entirety and the wholeness of them when our faith is kind of dwindling and being challenged. To rejoice is difficult in hard situations. And I think that's perhaps why God has Paul say it twice. These are two different commands. Rejoice in the Lord. I didn't say it loud enough. So again, I say rejoice. No, that's that's not the context. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. He's making this double emphasis. Most scholars and, and theologians believe that he's doing this repetitive style because it's that important and because it really is not a hard concept, but it is a hard concept to live out. So he commands them to rejoice, not once but twice. Almost as if he hears the crowd going, Really, Paul? Rejoice? I just lost my fill-in-the-blank and you're telling me to rejoice? So it's almost as Paul responds to that question in their mind. He says, no, again, I say rejoice. So how's this rejoicing possible? How do we build upon that foundation when we admit that it's really humanly very, very hard to do this? Well, one way we can go back to what the Old Testament people did. They didn't see the Messiah yet. They had the promise of the Messiah. They had the promise of what God was going to do, but they didn't see in completion. And yet I want you to see in these just a couple phrases here, one from the psalmist, one from Isaiah, about how they say that they can rejoice not in what's happened so far, but in the promise of what is to come. Okay? So, so, so you waiting to see that? Isaiah 61.10. I will what? Greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Has the Messiah come to give us the robe of righteousness yet? In Isaiah's writing of this. It's been promised. If we go back in Isaiah, before Isaiah 61, he, he quotes the promise. He knows it's coming. Has it come yet? And yet what does he say? I will greatly rejoice when that time finally gets here. No, he acts as if it has already happened. Let me ask you another question. A lot of questions this morning. Do you think that God wants you as a believer this morning to live kind of in the hope and the promise, and one day when it becomes actuality, then you can change kind of the way that you feel about things? Or do you think that he has the full expectation that he has made the promise that Christ is coming back, that we will be with him for all eternity, and to live in that light and in that promise? It's what Isaiah did here. 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me. He acts like it's already happened. And here's theologically what God has said. That if you're in Christ, you don't belong here anymore. You have a heavenly home. And yet last time I checked, I'm still walking terra firma here. And yet I'm a citizen of heaven. What is the high call of God? To ignore that I live here presently? No. But to live in light of who I really am. And that's the most challenging part of the Christian life. To really take what is about to come, but theologically is already true, and to live as if it has already become actual reality. Because theologically it has. Positionally it has. Practically it hasn't. We still live right here. And last time I looked, this is in heaven. Psalms 35, 9. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. This exaltation, this joy, this rejoicing of something to come. Now that brings us from verse... Uh, 4 to verse 5, back in Philippians. Our vision verse for 2023. In the ESV, uh, it is read this way, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. How many of y'all that do not have the ESV have a different uh, word than reasonableness? Okay. Allison, what was what word do they use there? Okay. Somebody else. Gentleness. Somebody else. Moderation. Uh-huh. Uh, anybody have the word gracious? There's one version that says graciousness. Every one of those are true in interpretation. Somebody didn't get it wrong. They just got to say we're reading it because this Greek word means all of those things. It is a forbearance. It is a, a gentleness, a graciousness, a spirit of, of patience. And when you say that all those things do equate being reasonable, I mean, if you're gracious, are you going to be reasonable? If you're patient, if you're gentle, are you going to kind of be reasonable? I personally like the ESV. I like that word because that means something in my mind. You may like one of those other words and that's fine because they're all correct interpretations of this Greek word. But what I want us to really focus on this morning is that God is telling us that the true sign of spiritual maturity is that we don't freak out when challenging times come. I mean, I know that's deeply theological. That God from the heavens, don't freak out. (laughs) You're the victors here. Now in saying that, guys, you got two ears, and let's say that one is hearing very humanly, and one is listening very spiritually. The human ear is going to say, But when I do freak out, does that mean I've really just disappointed God? In other words, this whole exhortation to be gracious, to be reasonable, to to rejoice, and again I say rejoice, is a weight upon you because I can't live up to that. That's not how God intends that to be. It's a command. So I'm not going to water down that he's commanding us to live this way, but I want you to know that he finds this on the transforming spirit of God, the victory that Christ has given us. 
He didn't say you become a the most reasonable person in the room. No, because Christ is in you. Now my very spirit lives within you. You have the power to become the most reasonable person in the room. And this has application everywhere. When we understand the supremacy of Christ, it puts perspective on things. Husbands, wives, husbands, wives. Just in the last, let's just say this year, okay, 15 days worth. How many discussions would have been maybe shorter if you kept the perspective of Christ in the perspective of eternity? Perhaps how many discussions would not even have been discussions if your mind and your heart was already on the supremacy of Christ? I told you, put that on the left over there. Don't put it over there. Don't fold it like that. I mean, Carly messes up all the time, guys. I just, I... <laughs> knives down, not knives up. Come on. You want me to injure myself as I'm loading the dishwasher? And I hope you know that I'm joking there. <laughs> not. <laughs> Where does that stand in eternity? Where does that stand for somebody who's Life has been bought by the blood of Christ that victory over sin, death, and the grave has been brought to us that we truly have been redeemed. And yet, those discussions happen because we're still walking this earth. We're not denying this reality, but God is trying to mature us and grow us to live in who we really are now. There is a reason for our reasonableness, and it's that we should have the eternal perspective that comes with knowing Christ. And these can be just words, or it can be the reality that now is reflective of the way that we handle things. Paul would say, that changes everything. Listen, in case you just think, well, you know, that Paul, he has some strange things that he says. Just realize, please, if we really believe in how the Bible was inspired, that when we say Paul said this, God says that, okay? We do agree with that, right? But Paul did use, I mean, God did use Paul's personality, his position, and other things. Well, what did Peter say about this? Peter's kind of a hothead. We can relate much more to a Peter than a Paul sometimes. Speak first, think later, apologize last. What does Peter say after the transforming power of the Holy Spirit comes into his life? First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. It's, a, it's kind of a long passage, but I, I didn't want to leave any of this out because look at the challenge of what Peter says. God says to us, the church. Is he saying this to all humanity? Is he saying this to the church and believers in Christ? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's go on to that next slide. Beloved, I urge you, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles. Why did he call us sojourners and exiles? 
Because this is not our home. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which rage war against your soul. And when he says passions of the flesh, a lot of times we think of these awful sins. In context, does my desire to be right, is that a passion of the flesh? Even if it's something as silly as knives up or knives down in the dishwasher. Victory, knives down. which wage war against your soul. Abstain from these passions of the flesh. Now look, verse 12. Keep your conduct among, among the Gentiles honorable. And he uses this word Gentiles here to mean those that do not believe, okay? Not all Gentiles are lost. He's using it in that context. Keep your conduct among those that don't know Christ honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is the day of visitation? Day when Christ comes back. What did Paul say in, in, in our verse? Being reasonable, the Lord is at hand. What, what are they doing, guys? They're stretching out perspective from 2023 to eternity. Do you believe that the Lord is coming back? And so that should influence. That's why they, they bring this in there. Both of them bring this day of visitation. The Lord is at hand. It's both there. Let's see. Let's make it real practical now. Remember last week we had four action points? Four things that, that we could go out and, and apply the truth of God's word. Let's see now. Let's go revisit those as we close this morning. Those four action points, these action plans, and see how this scripture now commands us, guides us, and gives us a foundation for holy living. The first one was, learn to separate convictions from opinions. The art of sizing up, is this a mountain or is this a molehill? Do we need that in 2023? Do Christians need that? Not just the world, do, do Christians need that? Okay, when we live in light of the supremacy of Christ and in the light of eternity, do you think that will help us do this right here? Well, there will be times that we wanted to say something that we will simply walk away in the light of eternity, in light of the supremacy of Christ. So the first one checks out. I mean, if this is what Paul is saying, live in light of the supremacy of Christ, live in light of eternity, this one checks out. What about the second one? Learn to become a peacemaker and not just a peacekeeper. Don't just kind of walk out of the room or not just sweep it under the rug, but the art of leaning in and being gracious to people as opposed to leaning out. Does that line up scripturally with what Paul has commanded us to do today? I mean, in in one way, guys, the only way that I can be gracious is to understand how much grace God has given me. And when I understand that he has given me grace greater than my sin, then all of a sudden, as I take that in, that's where, you know, we, we have people from the past that, you know, Older generations, when they say, man, yeah, that's not worth fighting over. That's not even worth arguing over. It's really not even worth speaking about. 
they've learned through the wisdom of their life that not everything is a life and death matter. And in this case, that okay, I can go ahead and extend peace and, and try to make for peace. I can lean in when everything about me wants to lean out. Third one, learn to pray for the success of the other person. The art of becoming other-centered. I would challenge you that only in a moral sense you can be other-centered if you don't have Christ in you. You can achieve that. One of the great ministries of our area, I serve, is everybody at I serve working there is every one of those Christians. No. no. At least I, I, I don't think so. A, a big majority of them are, but not everybody. And so it's not something that we've kind of cornered the market. Only if you're a Christian can you care about other. But to have that, that goes a long way. That goes without judgment. That goes with a graciousness. I think that's part of the fruit of the Spirit that God gives us as we live in the Spirit. And the last one. Learn to identify bitterness and pray that God would remove it. The art of personal self-awareness and God-awareness. Could, could that last one happen even in a marriage? It can happen in a family? I mean, it doesn't have to be extended. It, it can be very personal. It can be in some of the most personal relationships that we have. And yet, here's what Christ is telling us, I believe. You, if you're a Christian, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the redemption of your very soul and your, your very being, He has now transformed you and you are to think, act, breathe differently. Why? Because now it's based in this victory of what Christ has done. Does it mean that everything is always going to go your way? No. Does it mean that tragedy isn't going to visit you? No. It doesn't mean any of those things. What it means is when tragedy does come, when disagreement does come, you are the most reasonable person in the room. Not in some kind of flippant way. I'll put a smile on your face. But in the reality of the supremacy of Christ and that this is not our final home, God. Does that make sense? Because I don't want it just to make, I mean, how challenging this would be for us to say, you know, guys, y'all just be more friendly to one another. That wouldn't be bad. We need to be more friendly. It's more than just saying, kind of grow up and act your age. Stop being some childish. That would have some merit. That is not what this verse means. When Paul challenges, when God challenges to be the most reasonable person in the room, he gives us a reason for reasonableness. And that is that Christ has redeemed us and that he has called us to a heavenly home to be with him forever. And living in the light of that victory and that eternity, it brings times when we're going, hey, it's just not a deal. Or I can be gracious to you because God has been gracious to me should change the very way that we live. Practicality coming out of good theology. So here's my challenge to you, C.S. Be, be the most reasonable person in the room. Be the most gracious person in the room. All these different words that we saw in these different translations, put, put that into that blank. And let that be your challenge for this year. 
not as some kind of moral ascent, but being transformed by the living God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, in a world where it seems like everything's becoming more and more unreasonable, you have an answer for that. And that answer is that you have allowed us as sojourners, as exiles, as you called us in First Peter, to still dwell here, but to live in the light of this royal priesthood, that we are a changed people. And so, Father... Let us live, as, as Peter said, to live as people of light that have been brought out of the darkness. Let us be people of grace, your grace, because you brought us out of our sin. Father, this, this year, this lifetime, help us truly to, to aspire to live by the power of your Spirit, Father as the most gracious, the most reasonable, the most rejoicing people in the room because of the supremacy of Christ and the victory that He's won. We love you and we thank you, Father. So we pray this in the hope that is Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.